pretty common for us to have people say to us in different settings, tell me about yourself. We've all heard it at one time or another. Tell me about yourself. Maybe in a job interview, maybe you meet a friend of a friend or a friend of a relative, and we know what they mean. Tell me about yourself, and we say things uh, that describe ourselves and what we've done, sometimes accomplishments. Well, I'm, uh, I might say, well, I'm a dad, or I'm a husband. You might say, I'm a basketball player, I'm an athlete, I'm a student. And on the list goes. It's common. We're used to it. We talk about what we've done. Not so common is for someone to say, who are you? Who are you? And that's the question I have for you this morning. Who are you? It's very important that we grapple with that matter. We don't hear it very often. It's very important. It's so important that people have been grappling with that issue for thousands of years. Who are we? It's very important because if we can get to that level, we're now deeper than what have I done. And now we're talking about maybe why I do what I do. We're talking about the essence of of who we are genuinely. How about this? We're talking about who we are when... There's no more applause for our athletic accomplishments because we're not so athletic. Now we're talking about who we are when no one remembers our academic achievements if we have them. Now we're talking about who we are when those relationships that so defined us are broken or gone. Who are you? crucial that we grapple with that matter. It'll help you deal with why you do what you do. It'll help you deal with the brokenness. It'll help you to be able to stand firmly as a Christian because of who you are in Christ. So several weeks ago, we talked about being made in the image of God, something we don't talk about enough. Every human being who's ever been born, has been made in the image of God. There's something unique. Every man, every woman, uniquely resembling God. And we talked about that at length. That means you have certain responsibilities to other image bearers as an image bearer. It means you have privileges like no other being. And then the next week, we talked about when we look in the mirror, so to speak, we not only need to say, I'm an image bearer, I also need to say, I am a sinner. I'm a spiritual rebel. I have to be able to look in the mirror and say, well, like the rest of the human race, I've not loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I've loved my neighbor as myself. I'm a a lawbreaker. I'm a spiritual rebel. And we talked about that at length. And what's always amazing is uh, when you do that amongst Christians, they're all excited. Pretty weird, isn't it? (laughs) pretty strange, you're like, you are unworthy and under the just condemnation of God. That was a great sermon, Pastor. Now, an unbeliever is totally offended by that if the Spirit of God isn't working. Why would a Christian say, that that, that was such a helpful sermon, you know, I want to listen to it again on the Internet. How twisted. It's not twisted because Christians understand 
that when we understand something of the, the depth of our sin, we understand something of the greatness of our Savior's work for us. And so we're all excited to learn the Bible and what it says about sin and the sinful human condition because it helps us to see that atonement is wonderful. So good job acting like Christians, everybody. Um, I know at Omaha Bible Church, if I just want to make you guys excited, I just preach about total depravity. <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, anyway, so made in the image of God, spiritually rebellious, and then this morning we're going to wrap things up and we're going to talk about who we are as Christians. If we're united to Christ, if we've trusted in Christ, who are we as Christians? So you look in that mirror, so to speak, and you say, who am I as a Christian? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And uh, I have a list of 11 answers. I think there can be 111. I might miss your favorite one. Sorry about that. Um, but I really want to start Luke next week. So, Lord willing, next week we're going to start our 27-year study in the gospel according to Luke. It's going to be awesome. Um, if you want to know what Luke is about, it's uh, what I would call the gospel of certainty. Because Dr. Luke, as he's writing a detailed account of things, um, he even uses that word. He wanted to give the details of things so that a believer could be certain about what Jesus has done and we will certainly have a great time talking about the work of Christ and, and the certainty of his work starting next week. So uh, we're going to try to keep things to Romans this morning and maybe a little bit of Ephesians. So if you want to find Romans in your Bible, you'll be set to go answering the question, who am I as a Christian? Who am I as a Christian? And if you're new to the Bible, maybe we just gave you a Bible this morning or recently, page 804, you can find the book of Romans. Um, and some of these will go quickly on, some of them not so quickly. But we're doing this so that we can understand maybe why we do the things that we do. We're going to do these things so we can understand this is what will last. We're going to do this so that we can, uh, if we understand who we are because of Christ, that we'll be more faithful worshipers uh, of Christ because we understand that he's done all these things. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Number one, when I look in the mirror and I say, who am I? I should say I am a saint, regardless of what my wife says. <laughs> okay, she just stepped out for a moment, so I'll talk about her. Um, I like starting with this one because it's kind of a shocker. You should, if you're a Christian, be able to look in the mirror and say, I am a saint. Now, regard, depending on what your, what your religious background is, you might be thinking, I don't think so. If you look at Romans chapter 1, and we can look at other places too, we're going to see all Christians are saints. Now, it even gets more spicy when you think to yourself, what does saint mean? Saint means holy one. You think, seriously? I thought a saint was somebody who just did like extra, extra, extraordinary things, and then somebody takes a vote, and eventually maybe they can be sainted. But the reality is, look at Romans chapter 1, verse 7. And you can find this in almost any introduction in the Bible, and it says, to all those in Rome, please notice, all those in Rome, and the people in Rome are new believers, relatively speaking, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy ones. He calls them holy ones. Now we have a hint as to how that can be because he says peace from God. That's a gift from God. And how does that happen? It happens because of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we have to remember that being a Christian is not about what we do and accomplish for ourselves. 
being a Christian is trusting in the work of Christ, which leads to us being labeled holy. Because we ourselves aren't holy, but Christ is, and we belong to Him, and so we're called saints. We're called holy ones. And so again, you can look in the mirror and say, who am I? I'm a saint because I'm so good and so special. No, 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 no. Because Jesus Christ is a great Savior and He has done everything for me necessary to be reconciled to God. You've got to know that. This isn't some kind of self-esteem thing where you're going to say, Look, I'm a saint because I'm so good. You know, I'm a saint because Christ is so powerful. And we've got to remember that. Now, you don't need to go there, but in 1 Corinthians, it does the same kind of thing. Which is so ironic, because if you want to pick an ungodly church in the Bible, it's the church at Corinth. And he says the same thing to the church of God that is in Corinth. A bunch of pagans, right? You know anything about what they were, what they were doing? I mean, they, they, were, they, they were messed up. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're cleansed in Christ Jesus. It's not in and of themselves. Called to be saints. Our identity as Christians is not wrapped up in what we do and how good or how bad we are or the Corinthians would never be called saints. And let's all be honest, neither would we. But because of the work of Jesus, we're cleansed, we're holy, we're called saints. It's an amazing thing. Let's move on to another biblical reference, a biblical description of Christians. This one is just about as uh, interesting as the first one. Number two, I am righteous. How about that? Can you even write that down? I hope you at least get a little shaky when you write that down. If you feel really good about writing that down, you're probably messed up. (laughs) You're an egomaniac. You're self-righteous. I am righteous. To look in the mirror and say, all right, who are you? Well, I'm righteous. And now my wife isn't here and she'd go, I don't think so, right? <laughs> Just like any of your wives or husbands or kids or parents. But I'm here to tell you, based upon the authority of God's word, you stand before God if you are a Christian and you stand before God as righteous. Righteous, by the way, is the same word that has to do with being uh, it has to do with the justice of God. It, it's a law court image. God is the judge. He's the righteous. It comes from the same word. And in God's eyes, in God's court of law, he sees you as a perfect law keeper. He sees you as if you've loved him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How about that? Let's go ahead and see it for ourselves. Don't take my word for it. Romans chapter 4 would be a great, just a great text to see this in. We could also see it in Romans 3. Uh, For the sake of time, Romans 4, one of my very, very favorite verses. Verse 5 says, And to the one who does not work, so it's not religious achievement and what you accomplish, the one who does not work but believes, which is a synonym for trust, in him, that would be God, who, look what it says in Romans 4, 5, who justifies or declares righteous the ungodly. His faith, faith in Christ in our context is counted as righteousness. I mean, if you're not feeling a little charismatic, at least on the inside, there's probably something wrong with you. I mean, that is is thrilling. We're talking about him who justifies the ungodly. This is what separates Christianity from every world religion. 
We're talking about a religion where God declares people righteous who aren't righteous. In fact, he declares ungodly people righteous. This is an amazing thing, and it's in the context of explaining what the gospel is. The good news to you, because you're, oh man, I hate to tell you this, ungodly. The good news to you and to me, because we are ungodly, we don't love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, or love our neighbor as ourselves. The good news is, we're dealing with a God who declares ungodly people righteous. The other word for it is justification. God justifies the ungodly. This is what Christianity is about. This is why we worship Jesus. This is why we worship God. Because we're ungodly and He declares us godly even though we're not based upon the godly work of Christ. When you look in that mirror, you've got to say, I am righteous. Not because you are inherently, but because the Savior in whom you are trusting is. You've got to get this one. Got to get this one. He declares ungodly people righteous. And he can do it without compromising because his son actually, who is our substitute, is righteous. And you say, you talk about this every week, Pastor. You're right, I do. There's nothing I would rather talk about than this in one way or another. I so badly want you to get that. Who am I? If you're a Christian, in the eyes of God, you're perfect. You say, Pastor, but I know I'm not. I do too. (laughs) You're not. But because of being united to Christ by faith, God sees you as if you are. This is is basic Christian doctrine, teaching, foundational. We've got to get this. It will lead you to being a worshiper, not a worshiper of self, but a worshiper of Christ. Now, isn't it interesting, we, we saw uh, several weeks ago, Paul saying in 1 Timothy, I'm chief of sinners. King James translation. First, I'm foremost. And he's talking as a Christian. Yeah. Because he's not talking about his righteousness. He's talking about Christ's righteousness. I've never studied Latin. I've studied Greek and Hebrew. If I were going to study Latin... The first phrase I would learn is this. Simul justus et peccator. The reformers recovered this great doctrine, and that's what they called it. Simultaneously righteous and sinful. That's who we are as Christians. We're simultaneously righteous and sinful because we're righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. We have a righteous standing. It's as if we're perfect law keepers in the eyes of God. And yet, practically, Paul says, I'm chief of sinners. That's you and that's me. That's you and that's me. And if you get that, you'll understand it's not based upon you doing, trying, trying, doing, doing, doing. You'll say, I'm a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he's already done. And I love him for that. You can write down Romans chapter 3, verse 22. We won't take the time to go there. Other texts in Romans 1, 2, and 3 that are so helpful. I stand before God as perfect. You know, for years now, those of you who've been here a long time, Uh, I I love to trick people and say, true or false, you have to be perfect to go to heaven. And the answer is true. If you're not perfect, you ain't going to heaven. 
None of us are perfect. None of us are going to heaven. Believers are believing or trusting in the perfect work of Christ, His perfect righteousness. So we have His righteousness, which makes us acceptable to God. We have a wrong view of God, if we, an unbiblical view of God, if we think, well, you know what? I know I'm not perfect, but nobody is. So I'll get in. I'm not sure what religious book you got that from. You didn't get it from the Bible. You've got to be perfect. So whose perfection are you trusting in? Yours or His? And we say His, so we worship Him. It's great. He's done it all. How about that? How, how can you have that kind of assurance? You can walk out of here and, and know for certain God sees me as I'm perfect. And I'm not. I sinned by thinking the sermon was too long. Yeah, that's right. You should repent. <laughs> I mean, right now, what are our motives for the things that we do? I mean, the standard is loving God perfectly with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your motives are always right all the time, and you're doing everything with the right motive. Come on. How can I know that I'm perfect in the eyes of God? I look away from myself and I look to the perfect Savior. From heaven we hear God saying, in whom I'm well pleased. He would never say that about Pat Abendroth. But he would say it about his own son. I so badly want you to get that. It'll change your life. It'll change everything. Well, let's move on. Let's move to another. Number three. As a Christian, I am alive. I am alive. Spiritually alive. And let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're looking at Romans and Ephesians. So if you turn to the right, to 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians, then Galatians, then you'll find Ephesians. We'll just do this one quickly, but I wanted to go here because when we talked about sin, we talked about being spiritually dead. And I don't want to leave you thinking you're still spiritually dead if you're a Christian because actually you're made spiritually alive. And so it says in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3 says, Among whom we all once lived. Notice that's not just for the... You know, the, the really bad people. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying on the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Notice the grammar there. That would tie to the all. We were all children uh, of wrath by nature, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Got to get that. You have to understand that, at least to a degree. Who am I? If I'm a Christian, I'm alive spiritually, which is really exciting as long as you understand that you were dead spiritually. And, and how did you become alive spiritually? Well, I'm kind of smart and I'm educated and I know the right people. No! I, I became alive spiritually by the, by the work of God. It says it right there. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Him. God does it supernaturally. We could take the time, another time, to cross-reference to see what the Spirit of God does to us. We could go to John chapter 3 and Jesus... Jesus talking about how the Spirit of God blows, sort of like the wind. He goes where He wishes. And, and it's the Spirit of God that, that causes this new life 
Uh, we're, we're born again, to use another biblical phrase. It's by the Spirit of God bringing life. And if you get that, if you get that you were dead, you're alive not because you're so good and because you're so smart, but you're alive now because God has done something. You'll say what Paul says even here in verse 5 at the end, by grace you have been saved. Oh, that's what grace is. So many times in our world we think grace is what we earn. Grace is what we get when we go to church. Grace is when God gives you something that you don't deserve. You were spiritually dead, child of wrath like everybody, and God makes you alive together with Christ, and now you're alive, and now it causes you to be a worshiper, not of self. Oh, I lo- who are you? You are somebody. You're an achiever. You're an accomplisher. You can do anything. What? If I were to tell you that, you'd say, you know, who kidnapped the pastor and brought in the New Age guy? Jesus saves sinners, rebellious people like us. We've got to understand that we're children of wrath to begin with, or we'll never see how great it is to be made alive by grace which causes us then to worship, and we're beyond worshiping ourselves. Look at you. And we disguise it in the name of Jesus or something. We're true worshipers. We act like Christians. Let's move on to another description of Christians. I am redeemed. I am redeemed. uh, Romans chapter 3 is just one great text about this. I am redeemed. This is really important. Go to Romans chapter 3 if you would. This is important because again, as you look in the mirror and you say, who am I? By the way, I've never done that before, just so you understand. (laughs) Be kind of weird, but anyway. Figuratively speaking, when you say, who, who am I? Well, reality is, I fall short. Reality is, I'm still struggling with sin. Reality is, I'm starting to feel pretty guilty when I look in the mirror and I go, man, struggling. And you are too, if you're honest. That's why it's important to remember that you're redeemed if you're a Christian. Atonement has been made. You're not guilty in the eyes of God. It's crucial that you understand this because you might not feel this, but it's a reality based upon what Jesus has already done. So let's go ahead and see it in the text and ground it in the text. It says in verse 24, talking about our being justified or being declared righteous in the eyes of God, it says we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption of, There's our word, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a satisfaction or an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. And that is a mouthful. It's a mindful. Through the redemption, it's in Christ Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You can say, if you're a Christian, I'm redeemed. You say, what does that mean, though? To be 
redeemed is to be purchased out of. Redemption. You've been purchased out of and you've been set free. It's been a long time since I've referenced Gladiator in a sermon, so I probably should. I'm due. Because everybody thinks that's the best movie that's ever made. You've got those warriors who are, who are slaves. The gladiators. I think that's third century or something, but it's old, okay? You're getting close to, to Bible times. We're talking about someone now coming and paying for those criminals to be set free. They don't have to be gladiators anymore. We are lawbreakers. We're the riffraff of God's world. We've not treated him like he's God. And yet he himself sends his son to pay the penalty that we deserve. To redeem us. To set us free so that we can then be free indeed. Redemption. It's not a perfect image. I understand that. It's much greater than 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 the movie kind of image. But you've got to understand, redemption is in the context of enslavement. And Jesus comes to set us free, to redeem us. He pays the price. It gets richer even than that in our very text here. Redemption is greater than we might have even imagined because redemption happens through propitiation or atonement, some of your translations might say, or satisfaction and that happens by His blood. And this might be a shocker to some of you. But if you're going to talk about propitiation, you've got to talk about anger. And you've got to talk about wrath. And in our context, it's talking about God. And I realize that might not be what you learned in Sunday school. I realize you might think I'm reading from the Old Testament, but I'm reading from Romans, the New Testament. To really get this, to get that you're redeemed. And how was I redeemed, set free? I was set free because my sins were atoned for. Uh, God was propitiated. He was satisfied. Now, that happens because you're talking about a God who, to quote the Bible, is angry with sin every day. God is not okay with our cosmic rebellion. He's not okay with, with our not loving Him and worshiping Him with our whole lives. He's furious, he's angry about it. And you say, that's not the God I believe in, that's great, you're an idolater. The God of the Bible, who's revealed himself, is the one true God who made everything and has every right to say whatever he wants to say because it's his universe. And he says, treat me like I'm God. And so what we need, because we haven't, is we need propitiation. We need atonement. We need something to happen. And, And so what God graciously does is, And you'll never understand grace if you think God is never angry. You'd never understand the cross. Why didn't he just wink it off? Why did God send his son Jesus to be be an atonement for sins when there really wasn't a problem? Why couldn't everybody just say, I'm sorry? No, there's God who has just laws. And he says, if you sin, you will die. And what does he do? He, at the same time, is not only a righteous God, he's a God of love. And at the same time, he sends his son to propitiate his just anger and wrath. And to redeem us and to free us. And the son counted it a privilege, even though it was an awful hard thing. Read about it in the garden. 
But he counted it as a privilege because he himself gave himself up for us, it says in Ephesians 5. And I'm belaboring this somewhat so that we can say, I've been redeemed and it means something. It means something grand. It's not, I've been redeemed and you know what, I I deserve it. It was no big deal. No, it's a huge deal. We've been set free. Been set free. We've not done a service to people by saying God is never angry. That's you know that's just a different kind of God. First of all, we haven't been ethical with people because we still call our churches churches, and we still say we're Christians. We open the Bible and we see in New and Old Testament the God we're dealing with is not a manageable deity. He's God. And there's one way to be right with Him and that's through atonement. And wonderfully and graciously He sends His very Son who's one of us, becomes one of us to atone for our sins. I so badly want you to look in that mirror and when you say, who am I in Christ? I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that will make you a worshiper. And that will matter when all the applauses your accomplishments are over. Can we, can we move on? We just need to have a little come to Jesus meeting right here. This is thrilling stuff. I'm so thrilled to be able to talk about it. Let's move on to another one. Number five is related. We'll do this one. Uh, number five, I am free. I am free. Yeah, if you've been redeemed, you've been set free and we've been set free in Christ. Romans chapter six is helpful when it comes to this. And you'll appreciate this better when you understand that you weren't free before. Romans chapter 6, verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, I want to stop there just for a second in verse 18. See, once again, we've got to understand that dark side of things. I was a slave to sin. People say, you know, people want to debate about whether or not we have free will. And do we have free will? We don't have free will. The Arminians say we don't have free will. The Calvinists say we, or they say we do have free will. The Calvinists say we don't have free will. And it goes back and forth. Luther and Erasmus, this is never ending. And I don't plan to solve the debate here. But I just like to tell people, yeah, I believe in free will. You have the freedom to act according to your nature. And you're a sinner. And you're enslaved to sin. That's Romans 6. Romans 6 says you're not free. You're enslaved. You're enslaved to sin. You can call it free will if you want. You're free to sin in all different kinds of ways as an unbeliever. But the reality is you've fallen in the pit and you can't get out. And you don't want to get out. And you sin in all different kinds of ways in the pit. We've got to understand something of the darkness of sin. If we're going to understand the greatness of salvation... Who am I in Christ? I've been set free. Well, I was free before to do whatever I wanted to do. No, you weren't. Read Romans 6. You were a slave to sin. Unbelievers sin very creatively in all different kinds of ways. Believers do too, unfortunately. They sin freely. (laughs) But they act according to their nature, which means they sin. 
Which, by the way, is why Calvin said there's no free will. Which is, by the way, why Luther said to Erasmus, there's no such thing as free will. I'm going to write a book called The Bondage of the Will. Because unbelievers can't break out unless they're broken out by Christ. We've been set free. He says it right there. He says it right there. Having been set free from sin. I want to look in the mirror and say, I am free. But I also want to read the end of verse 18. I want you to too. And have become slaves of righteousness. (laughs) Ultimately, there's no such thing as a free person. Everybody's enslaved. You're either enslaved to sin or enslaved to righteousness. And that's why in other contexts, Christians say Jesus is Lord. Kurios in the Greek text. Master. Nobody's free. Except we're free from sin because of Christ's gracious, gracious headship over us. Man, this stuff is just so exciting. You know what we're talking about today? This is gospel stuff. This is, this is where we live and breathe and have our being. These are just gospel building blocks. This is good news to the ungodly. And that's who we are, if we're honest. Number six, I am loved. I am loved. Ephesians chapter 2. I am loved. This is pretty helpful when the relationships in the here and now are broken. This is profound. This is dealing with who you are, not just tell me about yourself. I am loved by God. Now, lest you think in in Ephesians chapter 2, it's, you know, looking in the mirror and say, Oh, you know, Pat, who are you? I'm loved. Somebody loves you, you know, because you're so lovely. You're doing a good job. (laughs) Well, we'll excuse you while you all throw up. Um, We have a vomitorium over here (laughs) Uh, (laughs) for when the pastor does things like that. Now, I'm poking fun, but I, I, I need to be poking fun because we, we're all fed a pretty steady appetite of that stuff. Look in the mirror, ask who you are, and you're loved. And the implication is because you're lovely, because you're so special, and you're so extraordinary. Wait a second. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath even as the rest. I'm about ready to show you something more significant than someone telling you you're loved because you're lovely, because quite frankly, that won't get you through the hard times, because sometimes when you look in the mirror, you're not lovely. This is what's better. This is what's better. Look at verse 4. But God. So you're, you're unlovely, unlikable, children of wrath. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. You want to know what's a lot better than loving you because you're lovely? Loving you when you're an enemy. Romans chapter 5. Loving you when you're a child of wrath. Loving you when you're spiritually dead. God's love is so great that He loves you when you're in that state. 
That will get you through. That's the reality of what happens in Christ. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It talks about being raised up and all of these things. It's, it's, it's utterly grand. You can keep the other garbage. You can keep the psychobabble. God loved me when I was unlovable and unlovely. And that is something that I can conclude won't be undone based upon my performance or my lack of performance or whatever. If he loved me then, he loves me now. Now we're talking about Christian love. Now we're saying, who am I in that mirror? I'm loved by God. And we understand something about what that means. And it's not just sappy sentimentalism. There's something significant and powerful about that kind of love. It's gospel love. One other text about this that I want you to move over to, and that would be Romans chapter 8. And then we're going to start moving um, and staying in Romans chapter 8. We sing some more of these things. Now, you might be thinking, now, this is all interesting theological information, but I don't really know what the cash value is. And I'll, I'll grant to you, this is very theological and very biblical. Just giving you text. But let's really talk about cash value. Let's really talk about practical for just a moment. Again, when there's no more applause and no one else remembers your name and your fame, and sometimes maybe even your closest relationships aren't so close anymore. What's going to matter? What's going to matter when you're on your deathbed ready to breathe your last breaths? What's going to matter when your body doesn't work so good anymore? What's going to matter is not tell me about yourself and what you've accomplished. What's going to matter is who are you? Who are you in Christ? That's what's going to matter. And there is no greater cash value than that. Let's just remember that. Romans chapter 8, still talking about I am loved. This is amazing. In Romans 8, 29, he says, For those whom he foreknew, and I'm trying to highlight that word because a synonym for foreknew would be foreloved because it's talking about affection. It's talking about uh, it's relational so that's why a lot of people have even translated, with a synonym at least, for loved. God, God knows, not just knowing information, but actually knows in, an, in a relational sense. But notice here, those whom he foreknew or foreloved, and then he goes on to explain other things. But then notice at the end of verse 30, it says, he also glorified. And for now, I just want you to connect those two words. God foreknew slash foreloved, and those he foreknew slash foreloved, he also glorified. We're going from eternity past into the future that we haven't seen yet. But where there is the first for loving or foreknowing, there most certainly absolutely will be the last glorifying, is what I want you to see. And that becomes really significant because if God has shown his love to me, it's a guarantee I will one day be perfected. I will be glorified. That's rich. God's love didn't just show up one day when you were converted, though it showed up. 
God's love didn't just show up even when Jesus came, though it certainly showed up. God's love was set upon you if you were a Christian before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 would have you to know. In Romans chapter 8, here we have before predestination, we have God for loving. That's awesome. You're not going to get that on cable TV today. I mean, come on. If I, if I can look in the mirror and say, I'm loved by God. Well, I'm loved by God in, in real time and space and real history with, with the incarnation and the, the atonement and the resurrection and the ascension. I'm loved by God in real time and history when the Spirit of God caused me to be born again. I'm loved by God. Wait a second. Even before time begins. I'm loved by God. This will get me through. And this will cause me to be a worshiper of Him. Because it's pretty mind-blowing. It's more than we can get our minds around. It's who we are in Christ. Now, number seven. I'm going to say a word here that some pastors get fired for saying in pulpits. Number seven, I am predestined. I am predestined. We're going to see this in Romans 8 as well. We're just going to work through Romans 8, 29 and 30 now. I knew, one, I knew of one pastor who in Southern California, um, you know how fences around the church parking lot even, which is more typical there than here, and um, the iron fence slid back and forth. And he sh- one Sunday preached on Ephesians chapter 1, um, didn't even really go there too much, just said the words like I just said. Showed up the next Sunday, got his key out. He was the first one there, went to go unlock the lock and locks changed. Don't make predestination controversial. It's not meant to be. In Romans chapter 8, it's in this chapter because it's meant to comfort you in suffering. It's in the context of suffering for Christians. And you know what's going to get you through the hard time when the bottom seems to fall out? Profound theological realities like God for loving and predestining. It's meant to give you comfort, not to split a church or to leave the locks being changed. Let's go ahead and see it. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's a profound reality. And it ends in verse 30 with glorification. Predestination is not hard to understand. By the way, it's for sure Christian because it's in the Christian Bible. I love meeting people say, I don't believe in predestination. I say, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Well, you have a Bible. Yes. Can I see it? I've got a word for you. It's in your Christian Bible. You do believe in predestination. Well, (laughs) come on. Uh, I want you to say, who am I as a Christian? I'm predestined. I'm predestined even to glorification. And so the bottom can totally drop out on all the things you did or wanted to do. And you know what really matters? You're predestined in Christ to glorification. It's wonderful. It's matchless. It's amazing. What does predestination mean? It's not very hard. Destination beforehand. It's locked in. It's totally locked in. And it's amazing. Not meant to be controversial. Meant to bring hope and encouragement. Let's help Christians who say they don't believe in predestination to understand it. 
Not to jam it down their throat, but to help them to understand. Brings hope. And by the way, sadly, we think people who believe in predestination are prideful. And sometimes, sadly, they are. People who believe in predestination should be anything but prideful. Because we not only have read Romans 8, we've read Romans 1, 2, and 3. No one does good, no, not one. No one seeks God, no one understands. I'm just quoting Romans. And then it begins to make sense. How could I be a Christian? How could I be a believer if all those things are true? Well, it's because God has done something. And so I can't say, yeah, I'm predestined, man. based upon nothing we've done. It's based upon His good pleasure, Ephesians 1 would say. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But it is meant to give hope and encouragement that God has shown His love unconditionally. Let's move on to another one. Number eight, I am called. We see this in the text as well. It says in verse 30, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. I'll just say one thing about the called, and that is, you have to, based upon the context of where it's used, it can mean a couple different things. And the way Paul uses it, it's used for a calling that is sure and irreversible. Okay? I've been called by God. By the power of the Spirit. Theologians say it's the effective or effectual call. It's irreversible. If God calls you by the power of the Spirit, it can't be undone. And a real practical thing here is, if mentally you cross-reference to 1 Corinthians 1, I think it's verse 24, the called hear the gospel and they don't go, that's stupid, that's foolishness, that's lunacy. The called, who the Spirit is calling, hear the gospel and they say, that is the power of God unto salvation. And I'm mentioning it now because, once again, you look in the mirror and you say, who am I? Sometimes you've got to say, I'm called by God. That's why I believe this stuff. And that's why some people around me don't. That gets pretty hard sometimes. Maybe it's never happened to you before. If it hasn't, it probably will. During those darker times and those hard times and you're watching people that you love so much and you want them to trust in Christ and Christ alone and you pray for them and you're burdened for them and they just keep thinking two plus two is seven spiritually. And time and time again, they just come to the absolute wrong conclusions about the gospel. And then it happens in another relationship. And then it happens in another relationship. And you might even be to the place of saying, have I completely lost my mind? What's the difference? It's not because I'm a good person and they're not. In fact, practically, they seem to be better than I am. What's the deal? It is helpful to be able to look into that mirror and say, who am I if I'm a Christian? I've been called by God, effectually by the Spirit of God, which brings about embracing the gospel, not as foolishness, but as the power of God unto salvation. I'm mentioning this because in 1 Corinthians one twenty four, he talks about the called. And, and that's helpful. It's encouraging. 
It's not because you're better than other people, but because the Spirit of God has blown like the wind, sovereignly, freely, and you've been called by God. And that can be very, very clarifying and encouraging and also worship-inducing. Number nine, I am glorified. I am glorified. Which sounds totally wrong, and I think it's meant to sound wrong because it tweaks our heads a little bit. We just saw in 29 and 30, we're talking about foreknown, predestined, called, justified, which we covered earlier. But then do notice at the very end, one more time, also glorified. Another way of saying that is perfected. And that's pretty wild, huh? You know, here I am. I'm going to stand before you. I'm, in the, I'm, I'm a pastor at Omaha Bible Church, and I just want you to know that I'm glorified. I'm perfect. I'm a perfect husband, and I'm a perfect father, and I'm a perfect uh, pastor. I've always done everything that's right. And uh, not only that, I have a perfect body. <laughs> Vomitorium, you know. See, like that, that is disgusting. I know that guy better than that. He is a piece of work is what he is. You know, he's the poster child for Romans chapter 4. God justifies the ungodly. You're right. But I do want you to know if you're a Christian, you could stand right up here next to me and say, I'm glorified. What? How could that be? The reason that could be is because of Christ. That's right. Because his work has already been accomplished. Not only death, but also resurrection. It's a guaranteed fact. If you're trusting in him, you too will be, I'm going to quote the Bible now, raised unto newness of life. Guarantee you will no longer struggle with sin. You will be perfected. Guarantee you will no longer have a broken body. Guaranteed because of his resurrected body. And if you think, well, I don't really believe in a literal resurrection. It's just figurative. You know what? The more your body hurts, the more you might want to start believing in a literal resurrection. (laughs) The more you might want to act like a Christian and just embrace it. Guys, glorified. Why does he say past tense when it hasn't been done? Because it hasn't been done. Because just the same, I could say, I stand before you right now glorified, and you could say, no, you don't. And you'd be right. Because in another sense, there's no way I'm glorified. There's no possible way I'm glorified. Because in the real life here and now, I'm not. But positionally, because of Christ, I am. I'm waiting for it to be, to use a fancy word, I'm waiting for it to be actualized. I know it's already as good as done because he's already led the way. It's already happened. But it hasn't happened practically in my life yet. But I so badly, if you're a Christian, want you to look into that mirror. And when you say, who am I as a Christian? I want you to be able to say, I am glorified. Perfect. Even though you're not. This is sort of uh, this is the way Isaiah 53 speaks. By the way, I was just talking to a friend this week. We were getting together, and has, he's having severe physical challenges. And we talked about Isaiah 53. You know that passage where it says, "By his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed." There's a sense in which that's not true, but there's a sense in which it's absolutely true 
if it's in a Romans chapter 8 sense. It's as good as done. It's as good as done. Now, of course, the, the, the people on the, the televangelists are going to say, you've got to have more faith and you've got to do more, and then it's going to actually work for you. The reality is it doesn't say that. It's considered a locked-in absolute reality. It's done. But it's talking about, like First John says, when you see him, you will be made like him. It's a guarantee, but it's not actualized here. I had to tell my friend, well, you know, remember Paul told Timothy to take a little, a little wine for medicinal, medicinal purposes for his bad stomach. Why didn't he say, hey, Timothy, you just don't have enough faith. By his stripes you're healed. Because Paul didn't have a wacky theology. And he would think in terms of Romans 8. The unbreakable chain with these links that start before time begins with foreknowing and end with glorification. And it's as sure as done. And by the way, some of you who have not had any physical problems in your life maybe aren't as excited as the rest of us. <laughs> okay? okay? Well, I guarantee you the older you get and the more you suffer, you're going to say glorification is good. <laughs> I'm waiting. And remember, Romans 8 is in the context of suffering. As you go through the hard times, you've got to say, you know what? Ultimately, I have got to go for not what are my accomplishments. Ultimately, I've got to go for who am I in Christ? And in Christ, you are glorified, guaranteed, knew everything. And that causes us to worship. Two more, quickly. Number 10. Are we on 10? I'm so excited. We'll just have lunch catered in. Jimmy John's will be happy. Uh, <laughs> number 10 I'm a son of God I'm a son of God do us all a favor if you're going to lead the, the, the children singing or something like that um, don't change the words to the song that says we're sons of God you know, I want my daughters to know that if they're Christians they're sons of God I want you to know if you're a Christian, whether you're a man or a woman, you're a son of God. You're a child of God, too. But you want to be a son of God. Because as the Bible's being written, in this ancient Middle Eastern culture, the eldest son is the heir. And all Christians are heirs with Christ, and that's why it calls us sons. And it's a great thing to be an heir to reign and rule with the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be a son. Let's go ahead and see it in Romans chapter 8. Let's look at verse 14. In verse 14, for all, notice that universality, all believers. Verse 14 of Romans chapter 8, for all who are led by the Spirit, and that would be true of all Christians, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as Sons. That means all the privileges, all the rights, all the inheritance, all of those things by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the closest relationship we can have. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So yes, indeed, we are children. Then keep reading verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Just a great, great reality. Jesus, even as he's called elsewhere in the Bible, he's described as our elder brother. He's more than that, by the way, but he's not less than that. 
He is our elder brother. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the son. But because of him and because of what he has done, we also are heirs and we will rule and we will reign with him. We're sons. It's extraordinary. And so when you're down on your luck, so to speak, we have a special class for you if you say things like that. But anyway, that's another sermon. If you're down on your luck, remember you're a son. And finally, I'm secure. I am secure. And we'll end on this. If it's all based upon what he's done and it can't be undone, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I love the question even. Nobody but nobody, right? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors Through Him who loved us. We're the super conquerors in Him. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Safe and secure from all alarm. Now what? Romans chapter 12. Worship. You worship. What you do. You worship. Father, thank you for our time together looking at these great, great realities that are ours because of what Jesus has done and not what we do. So thank you. May these be the very things we rest in And thank you that you've given us this physical reminder even now, this morning, of the things we've been talking about. That you have ordained to use bread and wine for your people as symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus. So may the things we do now as we eat and as we drink cause our minds to to be thinking about the things we've been learning about. That we'd be thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ and the sureness and the security that we have in Him. That our identity would be wrapped up in Him because indeed it is wrapped up in Him if we're Christians. Thank you so much for, for giving us this particular opportunity now to eat together and to drink together in remembrance of the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ who is our perfect Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.